1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Just a few verses as we continue working our way through 1 Timothy, pastoral epistles. Now, let me say a word or two about expository preaching. Uh, In this church, we rarely simply take a topic. Even when we do, we examine the topic scripturally. But we believe in preaching through books of the Bible or through a a segment of Scripture in order that we see the unity and how it hangs together. And so we actually take a text and expound the text. Um, There are some places where that's done really, really well in the church. It's increasingly rare in many segments of the church. So we may have some folks here that just aren't familiar with it. Let me give you some hints about listening to expository preaching. This fits all of us. Pray before you come. Pray, pray for the minister, pray for yourselves, that our hearts will be open to the word of the Lord. Secondly, read the text beforehand. Uh, Hopefully through the week you can be reading the text. If you come and we set it aside for one week and return to it, you're just a little ahead, that's fine. But read 1 Timothy so that you are familiar with it, or at least when you come uh, in the morning, uh, sit here and read the text so that you're familiar with it. The other is... When we look at the text, we're really preaching the text. And so when I say it's in verse 20 or verse 18, I really mean it's in verse 20 or verse 18. So it helps if you have the Bible open in front of you and you follow the text that is before you because the authority is in the text. The other hint is use your minds. I don't know why it is that even some men who, uh, folks who use their minds all during the week in all kinds of ways think when they come to church, they can just throw their minds in the bushes. No, you really need to use your mind and follow the argument of the Apostle Paul or whatever text we're, we're in for that day. And then also apply, apply the word to your own heart and to your own life. Take it with you into the week and into the remainder of your lives. Well, let's pray before reading. Father, will you please... Grant that we, your children, will understand this text, apply it to our souls, and make use of it for godly living. And if there are those among us who do not know Jesus personally, may that man, woman, young person, or child be drawn to Jesus, who alone can save from sin, setting aside any attempt of righteousness on his or her own, trusting in Jesus only for salvation. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, they're all about passing the torch. The Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his life. He knows that the apostolate will no longer exist And he is concerned to pass down the good deposit, the truth, faithful, sound doctrine to men who will uphold it and who will proclaim it and who will continue to pass it down from one generation to another faithfully. The pastoral epistles 
are essential to us because we need to understand the pastoral office, because of the onslaught of error, because of God's call upon His church to be different from the world, and because of God's call upon us to pass down the truth to our children and to those who are discipled by us. Let me remind you that the Apostle Paul had spent three years ministering in the Ephesian church, and now he's leaving Timothy to minister in that setting because false teachers have arisen. Now keep the the marker here and turn to the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 20, so that you can see these words for yourselves. In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse... 27. The Apostle Paul said this to the elders of Ephesus, the leaders of the church of Ephesus, when he saw them last after his three years of ministry among them. This is what he said. Acts 27, uh, 20, chapter 20, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears." So the Apostle Paul, turning back to 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul has already warned the elders there that false teachers are going to arise. They would have attack from without, and false teachers would arise from within the church itself. And so now as we come to 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20, he stresses the minister's duty to uphold sound doctrine. But I want you to hear this. Even though he's addressing a young minister... And those of us who have this calling have a peculiar obligation to uphold sound doctrine. So do you. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has a duty to know the Bible and to uphold sound doctrine. This is for you, not only for Jeff and for me or other teaching elders who may be here today. This is your duty. Because false doctrine dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ... It leads to spiritual and intellectual and moral confusion. And in the worst case, it can lead to the damnation of the soul. So I want to make two points from these verses this morning. And the first point is this. Upholding sound doctrine. Upholding sound doctrine. Now let's look at it, verse 18 and the first part of 19. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So you'll notice here in verse 18, he says, I'm bringing to you a charge, a charge, parangelion. In verses 3 and 5 of this chapter, the noun and verb form of this word have already been used. Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
And so he uses the term charge again in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you. Well, what charge? The charge to preach the truth, the command to promote sound doctrine, and to prohibit false doctrine in the church. This, he says in verse 18, this charge, this responsibility, this calling, this duty, I entrust to you. It's a sacred trust that is given to the minister to refute false teaching. Paratithemai. Commit, entrust. Literally, it is a banking word. It means to deposit. I deposit. I charge you. I entrust to you. I deposit unto you this responsibility. Now, when you go to the bank... You deposit something valuable, don't you? You deposit your money. That's valuable. Uh, he's saying to Timothy, I am, I'm investing in you. I am depositing something uh, in your hands. And it's far, far more valuable than silver and gold. It's the truth as it is in Jesus that must be preached to the people of God and passed down from generation to generation. Timothy was Paul's intern. He made this deposit of truth into Timothy's hands, and in pastoral service, the dividends would be paid in the church. So, teaching elder, ruling elder, we have a responsibility. Can we be trusted to hold to sound doctrine, and can we be trusted to pass it down? That's what he's saying to Timothy. He entrusts, he commands, he deposits all with the goal of preaching the truth and suppressing error in the church. Now, do you see this to be your pastor's calling? There are all sorts of views out there about what a minister ought to be, what a pastor should be, and there are many unbiblical views about what a pastor ought to be. So we must go to the pastoral epistles, we must go to the New Testament to find out what the pastor's call is, and we will see a lot about that as we work our way through First and Second Timothy and Titus. But he says to Timothy, I'm depositing this thing in your life so that you may faithfully pass it down. A consistent, ongoing duty to exposit the Scriptures, to preach the truth, to expose error. Do you see that that was Timothy's calling and that is the calling of your pastors here? Now, I just confess something to you, and this is not a complaint. Believe me, it's not. I love what I do. <laughs> I love it. It's not a complaint, nor is it tooting my own horn. I just want you to understand something about the pastor's calling. Constant deadlines are very, very difficult for me. Fatigue is my great problem in life. It always has been. And constant deadlines are difficult. So you spend 20 hours preparing the morning sermon. You give what's left to preparing Sunday night, Wednesday night. And some occasions you are teaching or preaching in other settings. A week or so back, I had six preps in one week as I recall, other opportunities to preach and teach. So you do this, and then you you finish the sermon, and since the sermon's never done, it continues to bear fruit for eternity. But you finish the sermon, and then what do you do? Well, you start over again. (laughs) You open the text, you get your Greek New Testament out, you dig in, you start again. So there's deadline after deadline after deadline after deadline. Now, it's no wonder to me that some preachers just kind of give up on it. So they get up and just preach any old thing. I say this to you, again, not a complaint, not a tooting. (laughs) I say this to you because I want you to understand we're committed to this. 
And the reason we're committed to this is because this is the calling that has been entrusted to us. This is the deposit that has been given to us who are your teachers here. Because this is the way in which we shepherd the flock of God purchased with Christ's own blood. The only shepherd's crook that I have to shepherd my flock is the Word of God preached and expounded. It's the most important thing. It's the first, the primary thing that the minister does. The primacy of preaching and teaching. It's the first thing. So, here's the point. If the minister's chief duty is to preach the Word, expound the text, refute error, if that is your pastor's chief duty, it's your chief need. If I'm the shepherd, you're the flock. If my first duty is to proclaim the word, your first need in life is to receive that word that is proclaimed with an open Bible in your hands so that you also may see it for yourselves. Now notice also that he writes to Timothy in verse 18, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, because he's affectionate. And he also knows that he's well-trained as his child who will respond to things just as he would. Uh, This is the true apostolic succession, by the way, passing down the truth from the apostles to his ministers and to the church to hold and believe. But he says that, I entrust this to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Now, what does that mean? There's no longer a prophecy in the church today. That is to say, fourth telling happens. We're doing that now, but foretelling does not happen because we have the Bible that is complete. We have a closed canon. In 1 Timothy 4.14, if you'll look at that, there's another reference to this. 1 Timothy 4.14, he says, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So he says here what he also says here in verse 18 of chapter 1. Probably it means that when he was ordained, there was prophecy in the church regarding his gifts and how he would be used, and apparently the Apostle Paul is confident to leave Timothy in Ephesus because he's going to make use of these gifts. But there's a good application of this, I think. Homer Kent says, young ministers have often found relief from occasional discouragement by recalling their own call to the ministry and the time when their spiritual gifts were recognized by the church and the elders laid hands on them, separating them to the work of ministry. So things get hard, things get tough, people don't listen, people rebel, problems in the church. The minister looks back and he says, God called me, the church recognized it, the elders laid their hands on me, I'm going to take heart from that. Now essentially that's what he's saying to Timothy. The minister's hardships are part of God's decree and purpose for him, but God has equipped the minister to address them from the Word of God. Now that leads us to see the responsibility that is described here of Timothy to promote the truth, uphold the truth, the responsibility is described as warfare, good warfare. Look at verse 18 again. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Soldier imagery, campaign for Christ and against error, waged by, in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. Holding faith actually might mean holding the faith, this body of truth. 
How can a good conscience be compromised by a minister? I'll tell you how. By not preaching the whole counsel of God, by holding back clear applications of truth, by smoothing the rough edges, by refusing to rebuke error, by allowing error to grow under his charge. In all of these ways, the minister can compromise his conscience. So keep to the Word of God, minister, if you will have a good conscience, but that's true of you too. If you would have a good conscience, you keep to the Word. Uh, That Word, with its cleansing power, if you would have a good conscience, you live out of the fullness of the teaching of the Word of God. Why does he speak of warfare? Because we've already seen that Satan's aim is to pervert sound doctrine. So notice how Paul puts it in chapter 6 of this epistle. Chapter 6, verse 12. Again, using warfare imagery, he says to Timothy, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight, he says. Second Timothy, uh, chapter 4, verse 7. Paul coming at the end of his life, he's in prison. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the the race, I've kept the faith. Tain piston to terica, I recall from my Greek New Testament. I have kept, I have kept the faith. Now turn to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. Let's remember that we're in a war. We'll begin reading at verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, but on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. You see? Do you understand? Do you begin to understand? Do we understand that we are in warfare as Christians, that the church is militant, in this age in which we live. William Hendrickson says, a Christian must be both a good soldier and a good sailor. Now, a good sailor does not thrust away and discard the rudder of his ship. The good conscience, one that obeys the dictates of the word as applied to the heart by the Holy Spirit, the good conscience is the rudder, guiding the believer's vessel into the safe harbor of everlasting rest, But certain individuals have discarded that rudder. The inevitable result was that with reference to their faith, the truth which they had confessed with their lips, the name of Christ which they had named, 
they suffered shipwreck. If even literal shipwreck is agonizing, as Paul had experienced, how much more to be feared is religious shipwreck. And if we do not keep to the word, have a clear conscience, and if we are not aware that we are in spiritual battle and warfare, then we're headed to shipwreck. Well, that's upholding sound doctrine. Now I want to show you the importance of this by the contrast. Second point, failing to uphold sound doctrine. So he goes on in verse 19 and he says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So he speaks now of those who did not maintain the truth, did not wage good warfare, did not maintain a good conscience, but rejected it by rejecting this, and the word means violently rejecting it. They rejected the truth as it is in Jesus. And he says they made shipwreck of their faith. Now, it could be the faith, meaning the objective truth, or it could be their faith, meaning their personal faith, their personal catastrophe, both translations are possible. Pretty difficult to know exactly. But one thing is for sure. One who does not uphold sound doctrine will lead others to shipwreck. I remember an illustration of Charles Simeon in which he speaks of a lighthouse and that there was a great, great shipwreck and, and women were on the shore crying and weeping as they saw their their husbands and their babies being drowned. And when they brought the man before the court in order that he might be examined, who had the responsibility for the lighthouse, he confessed, I was asleep. Asleep. And many a minister, I think, is asleep. We don't realize the warfare we're in. We're not proclaiming the word of the Lord. We're not upholding the faith. And when that happens, we are leading others into shipwreck. Now, I'm struck by the seriousness of this text. Are you? Are are you? Is this just business as usual to you? Are you going through the motions? Or do you get it? Hey, this is serious business here. We fail to see the seriousness of false doctrine and the connection between doctrine and life. By the time Paul wrote 1 Timothy, he had already literally been shipwrecked four times, had lost everything but his life, But that's nothing to compare with what is lost with the moral shipwreck of those who disregard sound doctrine and the Word of God. And you know, one thing that strikes me about ministry in the past, because I'm pretty steeped in the old writers, is that ministers in the past were really in earnest. I'm talking about sound reform ministers. They were really, really in earnest. There is a seriousness about their ministries that just seems to be lost today, and it's really showing in the church and in our lives. So Paul here gives two illustrations of this shipwreck. Verse 20, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, two of them. Now, Hymenaeus is referenced in 2 Timothy uh, 2.17, in which we are told that Hymenaeus actually believed that the resurrection had already taken place, and he was leading everybody into confusion about that matter. 
and then we read of Alexander here, probably not the same Alexander mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, Alexander the coppersmith, which probably is intended to distinguish him from this Alexander here. Point is, Hymenaeus and Alexander, two leaders in false doctrine, leaders in heresy, perverting the gospel of Jesus Christ, and of them we may know what we read in verse 7 of chapter 1, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or things about which they make confident assertions. Now Paul says he delivered them to Satan. Look at this, verse 20. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now we have this very language, handing over to Satan, delivering to Satan, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 5 and 13, in which it obviously involved excommunication. Remove the man from your midst, excommunicate him, hand him over to Satan, so that he may learn, in this case it says, not to blaspheme. Homer Kent says, excommunication from the church places the offender back in the world, which is Satan's dominion. Hence, to deliver unto Satan can be understood as removal back to the world, and this accords with the scriptural statements, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in the evil one. It also may be an apostolic gift to hand the body over to affliction as a means of addressing the needs of his heart. That's certainly possible. But I want you to note two things here as we read this language. Wouldn't you agree that this, to our ears, sounds very severe? Do we hear that kind of language today? Hand him over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme? I've never heard it except when I've read the scriptures. I want you to notice two things about that. First of all, this does not fit most people's notion about God and what kindness is all about. Today, we would say, surely God doesn't inflict anybody ever. Today, we would say, excommunication, excommunicate a false teacher, it's the false teacher that gets the sympathy. That church, those leaders, they just weren't nice, or they practiced discipline, they must be a cult or something. So you just practice biblical Christianity and you'll be misunderstood. We will be judged by the world's criteria and even by professing Christians who haven't examined the scriptures on this subject or have set it aside. So I ask these questions of you, people of God. Who is the head and king of the church? What is our only infallible rule of faith and practice? What are we to seek Man's approval or God's glory? To whom will we ultimately give an account? Will you then live with the courage of your convictions? Will you sweep out of your life that rubbish that would keep you from submitting to what the Bible says on this and other matters? That's the first thing I want you to notice about this. The second thing I want you to notice is that Paul's intent in handing false teachers over to Satan is loving correction. Look, I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's his concern. 
The goals of discipline are the honor of Christ, the purity of the church, and if the Holy Spirit is pleased to bless it, recovery of the offender. And if they are returned to the world, if they are told you are no longer a part of the church, we cannot tolerate this in the church. If they're truly Christians, they will return to the Lord and they will repent and also return to the church. Now, Paul yearns for this. You can know it. He yearns for these two false teachers to know the truth and to return to Christ and return to the truth. He longs for it, but he also yearns for something else. And that's why he's willing to take these steps. Paul also yearns to protect the church from false teaching. And so we learn from this that we are not to tolerate false teaching in our midst. So we've seen two things, upholding sound doctrine and failing to uphold sound doctrine. Now let me bring these applications to us as God's people. First, all of this says something about the Bible. The Bible is a unity. It contains a system of doctrine that is discernible. If that weren't true, you couldn't speak of doctrine. This is very important, what we call systematic theology, if you will, is essential for the life of the church, and it's essential for your life as a Christian. That's why our officers subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, a summary of the system of doctrine in the Bible, this clear body of truth. That's first. Second thing I want you to take with you is that the pastor is called to preach Love, persevere in, and propagate the truth and rebuke false teachers. But you also must love and persevere in and propagate the truth. You also must disdain false teaching. You must love the truth and be passionate about passing down the truth to your children and to those for whom you have responsibility. But I ask you this question, my friend. How can you possibly do this if you are neglecting your time in the Word? How? If you do not make constant, regular, ongoing use of the means that God has appointed for your maturity, how will you be discerning if there is no effort on your part to grow. And if that stings somebody's heart here, don't go out of this door and forget it. Do something about it. Repent. And get into this book. Get into the Word. And into fellowship with others. And use the means of grace that God has appointed. The preaching of the Word, the worship of God, prayer, the fellowship of His people, your personal Bible reading. I'll read something to you that Jay Adams wrote. He's talking about counseling, but it's applicable far beyond that. Imagine God, he says, in common grace through these systems. Now, he's talking about systems of counseling out there that aren't biblical. Imagine God in common grace through these systems leading people to believe that their problems can be solved apart from Christ. Systems designed to do, apart from the Scriptures, what the Scriptures themselves claim to do are not the product of common grace. This theological language cover is but another of Satan's distortions. Compromisers who spend more time studying Freud's view of human misery than the Apostle Peter's 
trip and fall over such language and place stumbling blocks in the way of others. Only those who ruminate, listen to this, only those who ruminate upon God's Word day and night will resist such temptations to compromise. The Christian counselor must be radically into studying the Scriptures or he too will be deceived. He goes on to talk about peddling the wares of the enemy. They are his agents. They offer systems, counsel, and a way of life opposed to biblical truth. Their views are not supplemental but outright alternatives. And then he concludes, Christians are duped into the acceptance of pagan thought and practice in counseling when they do not think theologically. Now, Jay Adams is dead on. And I want you to apply that not just to counseling. The minister who is not into the Word, just into the Word, ruminating upon the Word. Oh, how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day, says the psalmist. The minister who's not there will be deceived. The counselor who is not there will be deceived. But now you think about all that's coming to you throughout the week, through media and so forth, and I will promise you, if you, Christian, are not ruminating on the Word, indwelling it, living it, loving it, reading it, meditating upon it, you will be deceived. You'll begin to think some things are right that the Bible says aren't right. You'll begin to say, oh, what does it matter about? You'll be deceived if you don't get into the Word. So I really challenge you. This is extremely serious. And today, television and radio and media and social media in particular has so dominated our lives that we're more influenced by that than we are the Bible. We don't even have time for Bible and prayer anymore. And you know what else? We love that kind of thing so much that we've lost the taste for the Bible and our taste for communion with God and our taste for prayer in private time with Him. You tell me if it's not so. That's the temptation. Well then, a third thing. Take the warfare imagery seriously here. Have courage and take up the weapon, God's Word, and the whole armor of God. And remember, false doctrine is demonically inspired. That's what, that's what Paul tells us in these epistles. So uphold the marks of the true church, the true preaching of the word, the true administration of the sacraments, and the true administration of discipline, the marks of the church. Now let me conclude plainly. We can talk about loving God and people, and we can be saccharine sweet and maudlin and emotional or even sacrificial. But if we don't care that men arise and teach another way of salvation and teach another Christ, another way of being justified, if we are unwilling to support discipline in the church, if we are unwilling to learn the scriptures, unwilling to protect the, the pulpit, then the love of Christ does not constrain us and we do not love God and men, but rather we are willing to see men and women 
and children perish. Talk about love all you want. If you don't love the truth, you don't love God, you don't love man. Now, it's possible for someone to say, oh, I love doctrine and not really get it way down deep in the heart so that it transforms and also not to love God and not to love man. That's not my point today. My point today is you cannot truly love God and love man if you do not love the truth that he has revealed in his word. It's that plain, it's that clear, and it's that serious. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I uphold before you the truth, the good deposit, the cross of Jesus Christ, through which alone sinners can be saved and redeemed. Pointed to in this table this morning, in the broken body and the shed blood, and I called you to faith in Christ, in Christ alone. I called you to put your trust in him. And God's people said, Amen.